0: Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor of Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Dave Beer. He was a founder of Leeds Back to Basics Party, which is one of England's longest running dance music events. A notorious raconteur, Beer has been the life of the party for over 20 years and has just landed himself a new venue called Church. Despite having recently shattered his ribcage, Beer was able to run through his story with Kristen Carroll last week. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on Soundcloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Dave Beer is up next.
1: health at the moment Dave because you've had another accident, you've been in the rave trenches again recently I understand.
2: Yeah um, well i come out of hospital I've managed to um, shatter my entire um, rib cage at the back. I've got nine fractures, five broken ribs, three of those have been broken in two places. But, um, yeah, I fell out of a tree at the bottom of my garden because I've got in um, homage to Joe Strummer. I've built my own uh, little um, festival, Strummerville, down there. So we've got a campfire because I love nothing more than sitting on a campfire. But I had um, fairy lights in the tree. But um, although the Mandan and the caravans in camouflage, you know, I thought it was a smart idea to put lights in the trees which defeats the object slightly. Yeah, whilst uh taking them down or lowering them. I am um, my missus comes out and says, You're gonna fall and I'm saying, like, don't say that means Bosh and then, and then the next thing I know I'm in agony. But I thought um, I've broken my ribs on many occasions, you know what I mean? So I just went to the doctors and they just gave me painkillers for it. But, and I was playing with uh, Primal Scream, opening up for Primal Scream, and James playing the sets in between at Roundy Park in front of 9,000 people. And I was like in total agony. And I was just on painkillers and alcohol. Well, after the after party, I thought I better go to the hospital. Straight away, they admitted me and said, that, you know, how on earth have you managed to, you know, survive the week, you know, considering that you've. Yeah, the, the amount of damage you've done and I was really lucky that I hadn't punched my lung or yeah besides that my health's perfect you know.
1: And it's not the first time is it because a few years ago you were in hospital for a week or two was it with a lung well, infection?
2: Oh gosh I, I was in a coma for 10 days about five years ago with pneumonia.
1: So musically you actually started out I don't know if many people know it being a roadie for bands like The Clash and
2: yeah, I wasn't actually ready for the Clash, I just ran away with them because they were my favourite band, so um, I was more like a pain in the ass, you know, to, to be truthful, I was like, uh managed to sneak into the gig, but then the security got me and, and threw me out, so I was still having none of it, you know, I was like right there with red hair and a kilt and and managed to shimmy up a drainpipe and through this window, which I noticed was open, and um <laughs> like it was unbelievable because it, um, it was their dressing room, and they were like, "Who the fuck are you?" You know what I mean? I went, "Never mind who I am." You know what I mean? I know who you are. And you're probably the most important thing in my life. You know, but anyway, the, you know, please don't you know, grasp me up. The security just about to arrive, and they've already you know knocked me about a bit, so they hid me under the table, and then um, after that, uh, the security came in. They said, they, had, "They said no, we've not seen anybody." So they were like, "Right, who are you?" You know, so there's Joe Stummer and simon and and Mick Jones there on Top of Eden. Like, well, I'm Dave, so I'm Dave Biro. They say, well, how old are you? I'm like, 18. And they're like, how old are you? I'm like, 18. Like, how old are you? I went, 17, 16. Come on, 15. Okay, does your mum know you here? No. So I ended up with uh, Joe Stummer bringing my mum up saying, we've got your son. Um, <laughs> and she's going, well, you better bloody look after him. It was quite amusing really, because they told me to go back home, of which I told me, you know, ignored and went to the next night, which I think was in Coventry. That's when they sort of just said, no, not again. You know what I mean? Put me on the train the next day back to Leeds under the proviso if I went back home and did my work and did what my mum told me to do, they'd let me go on tour with them and. Um so that's what i did and that's kind of why i'd sort of it totally changed my life if it wasn't for that band you know they taught i learned so much from them you know all my early learning really was from
1: from music so what took you away from clash and that sort of scene into house music
2: well i mean i was i'd been touring you know from the age of when i left art school at 18 that's when i moved away from home, moved in with a, with Sisters of Mercy at the time because I was like, you know, I'd outgrown punk. Punk had gone sort of so, sort of sold out to an extent, which, like most scenes, when when it sells out, you don't want to be a part of it. So I was um, living with the Sisters of Mercy and then ended up roading with them. And then from there I went on with bands like, you know, Popular Itself and uh, more sort of crossover, sort of sampling bands like... Um, petrol Emotion, and and then went on a world tour with them. <laughs> I say world tour. It was supposed to last a year with Runday MC, Public Enemy, Eric B and Rakeem, and loads of other rap acts. And, but I only lasted three months before I got thrown off a tour because I... Uh, it was at this stage when they were at like the most militant and they were like, you know, Black Panthers and stuff. And uh, Professor Griff there with his, you know, black army uniform on. And I'd be, you know, totally taking the mickey when they came back. So I'd be, like, duh, 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 duh. you know, it was like totally taking the piss and going to Flavour Flavour because he had his clock round his neck. And I, you know, just wouldn't let it lie. The time jokes, you know, going, hey, mate, hey, Flavour you haven't got time on your cock have you and he's like oh man and it just went on every day so every day he'd come into catering and I'd probably exhausted by the time we got to Belgium it was three months in I mean it was quite a violent tour as well you know the crowd were you know pretty anti-semitic you know in, in the opposite way you know it was like very strange environment but you know I just kept going on about these time jokes, you know, like every second counts and, you know, and the tour manager kept telling me off, saying, you know, look, it's got to stop, you know, Flav didn't find it funny and I'm like, okay, it's not like, you know, I don't mean to wind him up, you know, more (laughs) clock jokes and he just went on and on and eventually that was, you know, and when he came into catering, I was on my final warning and Flav came in and I looked at him and he looked at me and I was like, silent no word this time and everybody's looking at me to see what i was going to come out with all i did was like look at me watch and raise my eyebrows and everybody just fell on floor laughing and i went right that's it you're out so i just said oh come on man you know like, i'm really fuck for it. It's only it was only a matter of time
1: and so getting kicked off that tour is what made you focus on
2: house yeah well i mean i went then to america I was touring with bands in America, because I I toured with a lot of bands, you know, and a lot of punk bands like the Ramones as well, and when uh, the gig finished, obviously, we'd pack the truck up, and we'd want to go on somewhere, so we'd go to parties, and unbeknownst to to me you know the only things that would open were like kind of you know black gay clubs you know and like you know in places in like detroit and you know like fall upon places like paradise garage and stuff in really early on and clubs like Save the robots and and i was listening to you know this music that i'd never heard before But, you know, it kind of appealed to me, you know, I just like I kind of thought, wow, this is, you know, i really this this music, you know, and it was like, you know, although it was sympathetic and at the time I said it wasn't real music, you know, it didn't have soul, which is absolute nonsense. I was lucky enough to to experience it, you know, in about, you know, around 1986, you know, maybe early 87, I came back to England and uh, we used to go to the Hacienda in... 85 when nobody went, you know, 85, 86 and nobody actually went to the Hacienda. My mate said, oh, come on, we're going to the act tonight. And I said, why do you want to go there? It's always dead. And I said, nah, it's having it. And Mike Pickering had started his nude night. So I went to the Hacienda and it was just totally insane. You know, just as soon as I walked in there, you know, it was like, wow, you know, the energy and the acid house thing that was going on there, which was you know, now famously known as the Summer of Love. was the beginning of that whole acid house chemical generation scene and it was like i was just totally hooked up all right where do i sign up and that was me you know i was like it was like right time right place you know whereas like maybe with punk i was just a little bit too early still there but not you know old enough to be a to play a proper role in it so
1: how long was it after going to the hacienda that you started basics was it a direct influence on you
2: obviously it's a massive influence on me and and England had changed I mean we were also coming down to um well they called it the magic roundabout and the parties on the m25 ring road around London so we'd come down we'd go down for parties there and I mean the Blackburn raves well it was just like amazing the illegal scene at the time was just like you know lawless things like everybody I've never, you know, seen anything like it. You know, you just felt like you were changing the world, and as it turned out, we probably were. It was when the Criminal Justice Bill was coming in around that time, and the police riots, and... Well, the police busted everything, really, and... Um, it was time to, for this music to go into clubs, so... And that's where, where Back to Basics came in, you know, 91. And there was no music like that. We'd been to, to a bee for we'd come back and we'd met people like Charlie Chester and and uh, the guys that were doing flying and the boys' own lot, you know, like Terry Farley and Weberall and what they were doing and the Love Ranch guys down in London and James Bailey in Nottingham. So there was nothing in in our area for that kind of music because we were sick of that kind of, you know, whistle blowing, glow stick waving, wide glove wearing, you know, nonsense that was going on, and everybody covering themselves in Vicks to being themselves up on their ease and stuff. It was like a bit beyond me.
1: And I heard that you met all 80 of the people who came to the first Basics Party on the door, and you were turning away people with whistles and telling them to try harder. Yeah, right?
2: we used to have a, we had a system. I mean, you probably wouldn't get away with it as much now, will you? I didn't get away with it then. We used to have a red and yellow card system and we'd stand on the door, me and Gary in our kilts and leather trousers and things and we dedicated it to those in long trousers and sensible shoes and it was two steps further than any other fucker you know so we just it was more like you know come out of a punk rock no sellout attitude so we were like somebody was not right and we thought he was obviously a good kid but he he just didn't look the part we just yellow card him and say sort yourself out but then when, like, you know, the wrong elements came out, like, you know, football hooligans or, you know, people who were just not right, we just red card them, you know, and on many occasions I've been threatened to be shot, you know, like from gangsters from, you know, from out of town and going, and I was saying, well, you know, sorry, mate, you're red carded, you know. we have red carded loads of people, including football players. And you mentioned Ali Cook there,
1: and that's the guy that you started it with. And not long after, there was a tragic accident with Ali. Um, yeah. Can you talk about that.
2: Um, yeah. It's still really hard to talk about, you know. It's like, um, it's one of those things that you never really get over, because he's my best friend, you know, from like from when we were kids. On our way to uh, up to Scotland, there was me, Ralph Lawson and Val Lawson's girlfriend, sorry, and my girlfriend, my son's mum at the time, and Ali driving the car going up to um, the sub club, but we got to Carlisle and there's a a really dangerous part of road that goes from being on a dual carriageway to just a a single two-way traffic. Weather conditions were so bad, the rain was pounding down and we could hardly see out the windows, but... It was, um, you know, totally sober. Well, I, Ali was... and and not had anything, but... Um, we thought we were still in a dual carriageway, obviously. Well, Ali did. And uh, we went round the corner, and the next thing there was, we just saw the headlights of an articulated lorry, and, yeah, we hit it head-on. And sadly, we lost Ali and... Um, and Jocelyn, uh, Ralph's girlfriend, at the time. Me and my... Uh, my son's mum, we were in hospital for quite some time. I actually discharged myself to go to Ali's funeral. But uh, yeah, it was um, crazy. I mean, a mad time. It was the first, first kind of accident, I don't know, of its kind, you know. I mean, I don't know if there's been many more since. I mean, it's it's kind of odd when you think about the, the chances of it happening, you know, are quite high considering, you know but it sent shockwaves across you know the dance scene and you know Ali was a really really like special very loved character you know what I mean it's like again you know his whole approach to to DJing was very unique he never like rehearsed you know didn't have decks at home and he'd be mixing in anything from you know Old like public image records to things like DAF and, and industrial music alongside like like techno tunes to you know songs like Esperale. There There's all sorts of mashup. Weber all said there uh, if Ali Cook had lived, he probably would have changed the course or the sound of English dance music.
1: Is it fair to say that his memory lives on in basics? Is that memory of him and what you set up originally something that's inspired the night and kept you going through the last totally, twenty five yeah. years?
2: That's the reason why we never changed path, changed course. That's why we've always stuck with the original ethos and the original no seller attitude of not, you know, going down that brown nosing corporate record company route so you know that's why we always refused sponsorship you know we'd sell merchandise we wouldn't put we, we never considered ourselves a brand you know and because ali wasn't there anymore to have those discussions you know should we do this or shouldn't we do that and when the old super club was blowing up and that kind of scene you know like the and clubs were like cream and ministry of sound and later Crasher these sort of places, and Renaissance, we were... I just refused to be a part of that. We were just, like, back-to-basic sponsored by Fook all and we've, like, totally prided ourselves of staying deeply rooted in the underground, as well as, you know, paying homage to some of the greats that we've, you know, and old past masters of house music. We've, um, you know, we're always looking for cutting-edge and fresh talent, you know, to keep it exciting.
1: In that respect, you've always stayed loyal to quite a core group of residents. Was that always the idea from the start, or is it just something yeah, that totally. happened naturally? I mean,
2: your mates are your mates, you know. To become a, a basics resident, you know, is a... Well, it's virtually impossible unless you've really got something about you, you know. And, um, and what is
1: it that you think Ralph's got as your longest-standing resident? He played the first record, right?
2: Yeah, he did, yeah. I was trying to remember the other day what it was, and um, for the life of me, it keeps... Slipping away, but um, yeah, he played the first ever tune. Ali introduced me to Ralph um, at a night that he used to do, I don't I think it was called something like Clear or Bubble but I can't remember. <laughs> but he was the perfect kind of, um, he played a, a kind of music that was not, you know, the same as Ali's, but, you know, but real quality house music and quality, you know, everything that, you know, about Ralph is, um, is a set of standards. So he was obviously going to be the perfect resident. Yeah, Ralph, Ralph and Ali were the first two residents, along with Martin Lever, who uh, told us that um, we'd never work again after when we fired him after the first week, you know, which is quite ironic. Now residing in the where is he now files.
1: And talking about that first week, can you remember what the vibe and the atmosphere was like at those early parties? Was it much different to today, do you think?
2: I mean, what we were doing was totally different and unique in, in itself, you know. Although we'd taken inspiration musically from what we'd seen, say, people like Alfredo in Ibiza, Doing that Balearic sound, which people tend to think Balearic means something like you know acoustic guitars or something like that these days, or you know, or on bongos. But you know, Balearic was more about playing a, 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 a lots of different styles and you know a big mashup of different kinds of tunes. And you know, and we were also, you know, we were just a kickback to a, 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 the stale kind of rave scene at the time. So you know what we were doing and the way we looked was totally different even down to our design you know like using the punk rock imagery that we used you know from jamie reed and plagiarizing some of the ideas from that you know using the queen's head and getting pictures of Elvis and putting cocks on him and stuff, and just, like, the total sort of anarchistic sort of approach to where way we were doing things, the way we were and the way we looked and acted. But the energy seemed to res- resonate with so many people at the time because something had to change, and change is good, you know. Everything needs to change after a while. You mentioned some of the
1: flyers there, the Queen's Heads, really iconic. You've done your own take on sort of coke slogans and stuff. How have you got away with it? Have you ever got in trouble? Have you
2: ever- yeah, we have, you know, but, you know, it's kind of just, you know, it's normally a slap on the wrist, you know. Um, I think when I did the one that um, had the, the, the nun been taken from behind by the monk and it just had no beating about the bush, I got into a bit of bother about that one. But um, Who with? Well, it was just some religious group. and We just said sorry, you know, obviously. You know, I think, I mean, the Queen, we've, we tend to, we've always got away with that in England, but when we went to America with it, I had her uh, sat with her tits out, sat on the toilet, and uh, the Americans were just totally outraged by it, and uh, that was when, we, you know, we, the, the local authorities came down on us, and we nearly got um, kicked out for that, <laughs> kicked out of America for it, you know, from, you know, which, and the Queen's got nothing to do with, uh, with America.
1: How important are the people inside the club as well as your own attitude? Is it possible to have a utopia where everybody's welcome? I mean, you've talked
2: about yeah, the strict door policy. I mean, like, I mean, the strict door policy was like, I mean, which is something that we, which is something that's going to happen again, but in a different, totally different kind of way. You know, back then it was, um, it was a totally different reason we wanted to keep. You know, like the football hooligans out, for instance. That's why we started in a gay club. You know. Um, we wanted people to come for the right reasons, you know, and come getting dressed up and coming for, you know, for the night and and be psyched up for it too. So they'd have the right energy rather than coming straight from the football match in the afternoon, pissed up. But the energy and the attitude of the crowd, everybody, it was a, you know, the timing was perfect for Back to Basics then, as it is now for like, you know, the newer angle on it with churches, like good things come to good people. Uh, there's been a, a big change in, you know, everybody seems to look the same or do the same dance these days in in clubs, you know, and there's there's a lot of pushing and shoving going on and not a, a lot of individuality, and I want to um, promote that so people can come and express themselves do their own dance and, uh, and wear what they want, you know, even come in the mum's frock without fear of persecution or ridicule, you know. So it's not so much um, it being a... A cliquey sort of door policy, you know. But we, you know, we're not just going to let everybody in just for bums on seats. It's not about money. Clubs are, are are too crammed these days. They just get as many people in as they possibly can. Cattle prod them all over the place. Nick the gear, you know. Tax them. Kick them out. You know. And the The overall cost of it, you know, it's like. You know, to me, they're creating a, a society of like handbag dealers and drug dealers. You know, I don't know how a young person, you know, can really afford to go out. You know, going out on the weekend should be a release, should be fun. It shouldn't be something you know, that you're worried about how how you're going to get the money together to afford the entrance and you know your bits and bobs that you need for your for your lunchbox when you go out on a night and um the taxes, you, know, you know, overpricing everybody when they're leaving venues. I mean, it's it's insane. You know what I mean? To, you, you know, you need at least hundred pounds to per person to go out on a night out now. If you're going out every, you know, every week, you know, that's a lot of money. You know, so it's. It's kind of mad when you think about it in that extent. You know, I you know, I think that the DJ bidding, the bidding wall on overpriced, overrated, over DJs, at some point that has to hit a wall and stop. Is that one of the
1: reasons why you've stuck to quite a... As well as your residents, you've stuck to quite a core group of DJs over the years? Basics is not really a party that will book the latest hot guy you know you've got quite a specific yeah, I mean, pool of djs
2: it tends to be if he's the latest hot guy we tend to sort of stop booking them you know we've we'd prided ourselves on finding them first for instance and the ones that we did and that we still recognize that he played for us for a much better price you know than you know even when they've blown up you know to superstar status you know the door price hasn't really changed. I mean, it was a fine but when we first opened but 25 years ago. But it's been around £10, 15 max, you know, like 15 years at least, you know what I mean? It's crazy really, but, you know, I refuse to be a part of that system. I don't want to be a part of that, you know. It's not about ripping people off, it's about giving people a good time. and. And I, you know, I'd feel guilty, you know. Right? I used to have this Mercedes before I got banned from driving, but I, I never had the hood down, you know, because I just in town because I didn't want to be giving it to Barry McGuigan, you know, driving around giving it the biggin in my Mercedes, and you know. And like that. I think very much basics is a working class party, and it's
1: Tristan said to me, another resident Tristan DeCuna that it's um, as much a working man's club as it is a youth club for the kids.
2: Again, that comes from the clash for me, you know you know that kind of working class hero that you know working class people doing good from the love and the joy of music it's not really about the class system you know i mean i've got friends from that you know homeless people to people that you know the grandsons of prime ministers but and everybody's welcome to the club but well maybe we should start playing darts and having dominoes and stuff in there sometimes it's got a bit laddish and clubs, but I think clubland in general has become a bit more like a boys' club, which I think is a shame because you know, like a lot of girls don't feel safe and well, not so much safe. They just get pestered so much because there's not enough girls to go around, which is something else that I'm hoping to to change with um, the new venue by you know making it a much safer environment. You know, like a, you know, there's going to be certain rules. So now would be a good time to talk about that. It's called Church.
1: Yeah. It does what it says on the tin. It's inside a church.
2: It is inside a church indeed. And um, the strangest thing about it is it's um, it used to be called St. David's. It has been a nightclub before. It was a, um, a student club because uh, it's quite close to the university. Nobody's ever really been in it because it wasn't that good.
1: And who are your partners in this because you're doing um, it with Yeah,
2: the, well, it's Aaron Mellor who um, who owns Digital in um, Tokyo Industries in, in Newcastle. Um, from Chuk Chuk Palace, but um, he's partners with uh, Peter Rook at the Hacienda. It was it was like talking to Aaron and um, and Peter Rook at Howard Marks' funeral, how it came about, and um, and I'm a strong believer in you know like when somebody passes away that there's a, especially somebody as close as when somebody close to you passes that there's another angel looking over you, and um, I've been looking for a venue for two years and. And I was awake, I was talking to Peter Hook and he, he was saying, have you been talking to Aaron about the new venue? And I am saying, well, yeah, I got a call, but, um, you know, like, what? And he said, well, what do you think about it? And I'm like, and I realised it was St. David's and there's been a lot of synchronicities that have gone on. You know, it's really strange synchronicities, you know, the fact that I've even got a band called The Blessed and even my tattoos look quite religious, even though I'm not religious as um I'm in all sorts of really strange—I don't believe in coincidences, but lots of synchronicities have kept happening that are almost like too, you know, hard to believe. You know, so I'm just going looking up at the you know, up at the sky and going, "Okay, whatever it is you want, I'll do. I'll do it." <laughs>
1: and it's going to be more than just a club, right? It's going to be yes. a, an academy.
2: And... Yeah, I mean, this is an idea that I've had for such a long time. I wanted to do is like a music academy. I mean, I used to be a strong believer in those that can do those that can't teach, but like I disagree in that now. I think it's those that can, you know, should teach, you know, and pass on the knowledge, especially in, you know, in dance music and and the fact that I, I know I've seen these courses going on at music colleges, which I couldn't believe when I first did it. I got asked to be a guest speaker at one of these places, and there was thirty kids sat in a classroom, all you know there to become like, you know, DJs, I couldn't quite believe it, I was saying to him, well, you know, this is not the right environment for that, you know, so I, I mean it's a long story really, I, I found out about a young a young black kid that had won a scholarship to um, a music college, which I won't name, and um, on enrollment the day he was there, you know, buzzing obviously, and he was swaggering down his hood up and his pants around his ankles, as he do, and um, the security wouldn't let him in, and they were saying, like, what are you doing here? I'm here to be roll. So yeah. there was a bit of a tussle on the door, and uh, he got his um, his windpipe, you know, so he blacked out as the security were restraining him, and uh, he ended up coming round in hospital on enrollment day, and I was so outraged by it. I just thought that's, you know, the sort of shit is just ridiculous, you know, why should it be just for a certain group of people that privilege, you know, if you've got the money or a grade two piano, you know, um, qualification. So I just thought, well, you know, where's the where's the justice in that? You know, it's like, you know, surely, you know, people with talent shouldn't be able to, uh, you know, get into these places anyway. So I just said, right, that's it, I'm going to open my own music academy and learn the basics from back to basics, and as well as getting a degree, which you can get a degree, um, the same as you would at any other, you know, university or music college. You know, you, I'm going to give um, classes away to you know less fortunate people, people with you know dysfunctional backgrounds, or you know people who don't have the money, or you know, and disabled kids. You know, I don't think it's fair that you know, if it's down to your, you know, your the colour of your skin to where you get taught music you know like you shouldn't have to go to be taught in Chapel Town at you know um, in some community centre you know like by an ex-con that used to be a DJ or you know disabled kids shouldn't have to get on special buses and special plays to learn either you know what I mean it should be a mix of everyone you know cause, just because you've got wonky legs does not mean to say you've got a wonky head you know and it's like not that I, I think it's a bad thing that they are these places i mean it's a good thing that they are these places my vision and my dream is that you know i can have all these people mixed up together and and that'll be a great melting pot and you know probably the next generation of your you know artist musicians you know your next vivian westwood's your next you know, Carl Cox as your next, you know, Damien Urse, and so on and so forth. All the best bands that I I can think of have, have always, like, been a mixed match of people that become mates from different backgrounds and got together, and, you know, youth movements have always come out of the underground and always come out of, like, you know, that melting pot which nightclubs have always provided. That's why I think what's going on in the governments is absolutely outrageous, you know, having another clamp down again, you know, as they did back in the criminal justice bill and what's just gone on with Fabric, right, it's disgraceful. Have you
1: found that with Church and also with Basics over the years that it has been you
2: against the establishment? Not like, I wouldn't say the government, it was more against the records company, you see, you know, like that kind of pop industry and the, the commercialism of, of music rather than against like the authorities although you know the police you know would bust all the um parties that we were throwing illegal parties so you know we stopped doing them and went into clubs but we've not been it's not an anti-establishment in that direction better to work with them and against them you know because that's a war that you're never going to win anyway even if you did want to go against it there's a cusp you know amongst you know there's an air of discontent from from clubbers as well, you know, now they want something new, they want something fresh. But, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, my answers about what might have been going on with Fabric, you know, and and the closure of other clubs across the country is not, you know, again, another way of culling a scene that maybe is looked upon in the wrong way, because far too often, like, dance music gets... Bad press, you know, but, you know, Acid House and dance music has done more for young people and bringing people together and stopping, you know, racial issues and football violence and there's so many things about bringing people together and actually, you know, spreading the love than any other institution I, I
1: can think of. And Basics, or is it you specifically, have actually been recognised in that way by Leeds Museum, is that right?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, Leeds is great because we've got a you know, forward-thinking council, you know, with a, and like Lorna Cohen, Disco Granny, we used to know since and she, uh, she looked into the licensing laws and realised that as long as we, you know, establishments didn't serve alcohol, they could stay open longer than two o'clock. And back then, everybody poured onto the streets at the same time, and obviously, everybody was guzzling the drinks down as quick as they could, and everybody's coming out onto the streets pissed up. And there's a lot of violence, and you know, inner city places weren't safe. So she set standards by, you know, giving dance clubs the late licenses. And obviously, for reasons unknown to um, anyone, um, a lot of these establishments didn't need to drink late <laughs> on until the early hours of the morning.
1: In 25 years of parties, what have been the biggest challenges? as you
2: look back. yeah. You know, somebody said to me, like, oh, it's amazing that you, like, you've survived it, you know, and it's like, survived it? What do you mean? It's not... I have survived anything, you know what I mean? It's like, not even been a challenge, you know? It's like, obviously, there's been, you know, challenges, and it's been a, a roller coaster ride, you know? Up and down, losing venues, gaining venues, you know? Cause I just live, you know, live and breathe what we do, you know, and like all our guys do, like the DJs, you know, and it's like it's everything to us. So, I mean, really, I suppose it's more of challenges as for you know the people around us, you know, like our families that have to to put up with what we do and you know and how staunch we are and, and, and the way we go about it you know because you know I risk everything you know I, you know back to basics is my baby you know always has been and like any parent they'll do anything for their kids and in
1: more than 1500 parties I think it is <laughs> yeah. um, what have you
2: learned about what it takes to make a good party what are the key ingredients would you say I think to make a good party you have to be really for a party because you want to have a party. I mean, like the old idea of a party is having fun, having a good time, you know, and I think that's what tends to have tend uh, disappeared a little bit, you know, I think if you want a good party, you have to start with the love. And it has to be about love, not money. It has to be, you, it's what you want to do, what you're into. And, you know, that's, you know, totally essential. And then it's down to your crowd, you know. It's obviously music, you know, is is quintessential to it, but also, you know, having a good crowd, you know, it always comes down to that. And I always say a perfect crowd would be like, you know... Well, for me, it would be 50% female, 30% straight men, and 20% gay men, you know what I mean? That would be a perfect crowd and a, a, a great party. Having an eye for detail, you know, and making sure it's a... You know, it's like a part. it's like an aeroplane journey. You know, it needs to be right from take to landing. When you approach a club, you know, you, it's nice to be welcomed into it and then start off on the runway, get up to about 30,000 feet, get peaking and then bring it back down again and have a safe landing and send everybody home safely.
1: Like you say, their basics has always been about the love rather than the money. Do you think there is a place for a professional slick-run party with, with really... Great graphics, or do you think that that belongs somewhere else?
2: Well, you know, times have changed. You know, I mean, obviously, we, we're having to adopt new ways, and change is good, you know. And I can learn as long as you know, you're never too late to learn certain ways. Some of the old ideas, maybe, that don't serve me as well now. I've had to, I've changed, you know. I mean, I've I found myself in the jungle, I found myself in the Amazon, and I was uh and I went and lived there for a month, you know, in the in the middle of a jungle and we were shaman doing ayahuasca and um at a time in my life which was probably just about perfect timing, you know, in me just as I was about reaching fifty and it was like that in itself was like if not life saving was life changing and I, I came back out of that jungle, you know, a totally different person. There's only so long you can go on losing money, you know you know, and not giving, you know, not advertising. Sometimes I wouldn't even advertise parties just for the sake of the artwork, you know. But, you know, there's not just me at stake there, you know, there's other people, you have to pay people, you know, and sometimes there's nothing worse than having to go up to a DJ and say, oh, you know, I haven't got the, you haven't taken enough on the door to sort them out and you're having to sort them out later. And, and that's when, you know, your kids have to go hungry because you're still having to pay off you know, things and debts from foreign parties. So but I have got a team of people around me now that are coming together, that we're putting together, that are really good at social media and, and it is something that we're going to endorse, you know, and take on board, you know. I think you have to move with times as we do with technology. I think you will always
1: remain basics and basics will always be you, though. Do you feel a, an expectation to be... The sort of, the figurehead of the party every weekend? Because people often say that it's not
2: the same when you're not there. <laughs> I mean, like, again, you know, something else that I've learned, you know, I went into the jungle, maybe a, a prisoner of my own identity, you know, for instance, if everybody said, come on, Dave, you know, let's get out here, here's the party, you know, and I'd, I'd just go along even if I didn't want to. And uh, I went in as Beero, which I still am, but I found David Michael Beer again in there. Uh, and I came out kind of almost... I felt like a, a, a toddler, like a newborn baby or something. and I, You know, felt like the master of my own destiny then. You know, rather than a prisoner of my identity. And I think, you know, yeah, back to basics is, you know, I don't know, Peter, that's not really for I me. Mean, to people say that to me, it's not the same without you, but um, I don't know about hanging my boots up as such, because I enjoy being the other side of the decks now as much. You know, the reason why I didn't DJ as much you know, a lot of people don't even realise how much producing I've done. You know, I've worked with David Bowie and Kissy Hine and you know, I've probably got about two albums worth of music. You know, things I've recorded with people like Robert Owens, and you know, and I've not even released. I've just made music. You know, what sort
1: of role were you in those collaborations? Were you
2: the producer? Yeah. Or are you yeah, a... totally? It's all my music. I wrote the songs, produced the songs. So you know, I often work with different engineers. You know, I like to. Working in a similar vein to, like, say, you know, Phil Spector did, you know, back in the day, you know, like building that wall of sound. But you know, I think by becoming a part and becoming into character and you know, and having a and knowing exactly what you want to create. But then people say that if you don't engineer it yourself. It's not your music, which is nonsense, you know. It's like, you know, just because you've got somebody doing the technical side of it, which you you understand, really doesn't mean to say that you can't get, you know. Well, if they do it quicker than you, you lose ideas if if you're having to look up on YouTube how to, you know, gate something. If you've got somebody that's really good at engineering and is, is clever at engineering, who's not generally a songwriter, why not do a collaboration with them? And, you know, and I find that... I'd rather be, you know, pulling out samples or pulling out or playing instruments and finding sounds and and using those and manipulating them as we do with our artwork. You know, it's the same with me and Nick. You know, I give him the ideas, give him the images, and he puts them together for me. Um, you know, because I don't know how to use Photoshop, but I know exactly what I want. You know, as an end result.
1: And talking about production, we're sat here in a very nicely well-equipped studio, at your house which many people might not know that you've got, how do you um, link with musicians to work here? Do you go out and look for them and get them in, or do they come to you? Or?
2: I mean, Ricky from the Kaiser Chiefs, like, you know, did, tiled my bathroom for, for some studio time, and I, I've i been trying to, I, I, I found him when he was on The Voice, I was like, oi, you know what I mean? I was like, I say one night. I said, my bathroom's falling to pieces, mate, you know what I mean? You're hanging out with John Johns and Kylie and that, you know, are you going to get my bathroom fixed? You know, it's like... And he, which he agreed to do, you know, but um, he brought Tom Jones to my 50th birthday party, so I mean, I let him off with it after that, you know. Um, but, you know, no, I mean, like, what we do here, it's a live studio. We've done a lot of people like Karim Bailey Bay, a lot of indie acts like, you know, Pigeon Detectives, local indie bands, and now um, Bob is um, a great producer. He's doing a lot of punk stuff, and it's not, you know, it's, a, it's a more of a, a, a band studio than it is like a... Although we have a mastering suite and we do um, finish off tracks now, you know, it's mainly predominantly, you know, a, a band studio. You know, I don't have a lot to do with that, you know, getting the bands in here, you know, Bob does all that, who manages it.
1: So if you've always had one foot in bands, guitar music, what is it that keeps you coming back to house? Is well, it the One foot in the rave. <laughs> <laughs> is it the people and the party as much as
2: the music itself? Totally, I mean... It resonates for me, It's always has done, thought of the flaws, it just works for me. Just I love that plagiarism of it, the sampling, the stealing, you know, of, you know I hear people complaining these days about re-edits, you know, I think that's insane, you know, about putting your personal imprint on stuff. You know, It's like, you know, it was never there in the first place, all music's been taken from somewhere, be whatever style it is, it's never, there's no such thing as an original idea it's always been influenced by something else they blamed elvis for like you know stealing black music he didn't steal it he just got inspired by it and
1: so going back to basics and to put you totally on the spot out of 1500 parties is there one that sticks out or two that sticks out or a particular (laughs) moment
2: or after party i mean it has been one big party although there's been it's low points but there is a couple you know i mean obviously I mean, there's a couple at the first club. I mean, I remember when Danny Rampling first played and I was looking down at the balcony, at the crowd, and you couldn't get on the balcony. It was just, just me up there. And I was looking down thinking, fuck, wow. And the, the DJ, boo was, Ralph, was playing in a truck. And then on the first birthday, we had a roadblock. And I remember looking out of the window with Charlie Chester, looking down on the street, and it was just total mayhem. That was amazing. and
1: And you've had some... People who have gone on to be pretty massive, from like Daft Punk. Players. Yeah, well, that was,
2: that's another party that was amazing. When we first brought them over to England, we had Daft Punk in one room, Goldie in another, and I think it was having Norman Jay and the Jam MCs or something in the other room. And that was, like, phenomenal. I remember, like, my mum and Goldie getting on like a house on fire, you know. She said, oh, the bloody hell are you. And he's there, dressed to head to toe in gold, and his teeth and his jewellery. She's going. He said, "Goldie." And she so went, "Well, that bloody makes sense." But that was a great party, you know. What I mean, and yeah, the, you know, Basement Jacks again, phenomenal. You know, like doing their first gigs. Guvemada, Sasha. You know, it's like it's just great just to have been a part of their. Uh, you know what they do. You know, what I mean, and again. When we um, gave the Homework album, you know, like it was Dave Clark and from Soma in Scotland, and myself come back from Paris and met, come across Daft Punk, who couldn't really speak English then, and we were listening to Daft da Punk, you know, and going, "What the fuck is this?" And they were, it is us, you know, and it's like, "Well, what's your name?" It's like Daft Punk. I went, "Oh, fuck that. Where are Daft Punks?" You know, uh, <laughs> where the Daft Punks? And it was like, "Well, do you want to come back to England?" So we brought them back, and um, we would giving them a cassette of the uh, Homework album i can't remember if it was david pattern by myself I mean, it's a bit vague who told um, caroline probably and gave um, the cassette to him to virgin we should have asked for like 20 percent, but we just uh we didn't ask for one percent so one percent off that would have been uh could have retired probably but have you ever
1: tried to get them back
2: yeah they could have been back you know like i mean they have been back but it's impossible to have brands, you know of that size you know, play now. I mean, they've got. A, they do a different thing now. It's not as if they do DJs as such. You know, they've come under different guises. I mean, when they do come and play to you know somewhere local or at a festival, they always phone up and say, you know, put me plus fifty on the guest list or whatever. And you know, bands like Basement Jacks, you know, come and do little sneaky freebies, and which is great because when I told them how big they were going to be, they didn't believe me. You know, I said, you know, you'll be too big to play for me in a year's time. But you're not really big believers at basics in big guest lists and celebrities, are you? Because you've
1: yeah. turned away a fair
2: few. Yeah, I think it's great to do. I mean, I think we don't give a fuck, really. People are people, you know. You know, that kind of VIP celebrity status thing means nothing to us, you know. I remember mean, for kicking Cantona out of the club, you know. for Did go ooh-ah, actually, as he fell down the stairs. We booted him out for nipping some girl's ass and you know like you know Galeano nearly didn't get in because uh, the shoes he was wearing i think gary thought he was wearing them ironically so he let him in but um i think a great story i heard once about martin fry from uh, abc turning up at um at the, at the end and going excuse me excuse me walking to the front going to the bouncers, "Martin my flight abc the bouncer just went "Pum!" smacked him straight in the face and knocked him out and i thought that was brilliant Um, Uh, You mentioned Gaz
1: there, and he did the door every Saturday for 20 years.
2: Yeah. How important a figure is he in the history of basics? Oh, totally. You know, I mean, Gary's been at the club more times than I have, but he had um, for for 20 years. He retired, I got him a gold watch, but um, (laughs) engraved, like you would when you finish finish your job. But one year I got him a samurai sword, which I had engraved saying... uh, for for duties above and beyond the call of duty. I mean, it was very stringent, you know, to get past him. And, yeah, it was so obviously it was crowd control. And so
1: if Gary dare retire, do you ever think about it? Could the party live on without you? Would you let it live on without you?
2: Yeah, totally. You know what I mean? If it, you know, if it had its own energy, you know, Yeah. My daughter's like she's sixteen She wants to have her own festival. I don't know if it'll be back to because you know, but she she loves it and so does my son, you know, but uh, yeah. You know, I can't imagine I can't imagine us stopping ever doing back to basics. I think, you know, even when I'm ninety I'll probably at least do you know, you've got to have a party once a month at least. You don't stop dancing because you're old, you become old because you stop dancing.
1: So looking ahead now, there's been many iconic birthday parties. You often have a theme. Can you give us any details about the 25th? Is it such a biggie?
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, I think, um, again, seeing the Queen's always been at the forefront of our imagery and and we've has been at the brunt end of our jokes. And, again, we're going to, in the same vein, we're going to have a silver jubilee, as the Queen had her silver jubilee street parties in 1977, which... Most people won't remember, but they had buntings across the streets all across the country, and um, had Kate, every, all, the, all the people came out of their houses and had these parties where cakes and and pop for the kids and uh, which then turned into a, a you know a party at night for the grown-ups so that's exactly what we intend to do you know do some for the kids in the street and then uh, and give them away you know get loads of people to donate software and bits and musical equipment for for the kids give them cake and then in the evening just have a full-on debauch rave. And that will be
1: the official opening of church as well, right?
2: No, no, the official opening is going to be on the 8th with Damien Lazarus, which is kind of weird, again, talking about the synchronicities, you know, Lazarus in the Bible, which I didn't know too much about the Bible until recently, but Lazarus with the resurrection, uh, which was, was again, accidental, but um, it's kind of fitting that, you know, Damien Lazarus is doing the resurrection and and a batch of basics as such uh, at church.
1: Yes, we're done. We're done. we